Well, welcome to the first session of the Global Missions Health Conference this afternoon. Um, this is my name. I won't say it out loud because I'm being recorded. And I work in a place where my name being associated with the Global Missions Health Conference would cause problems. So I just ask that you don't take any photos of me and you don't publish anything with my name on it. Um, so... Welcome. You're going to learn a little bit about antenatal care in the global setting and how to provide practical, easily implementable things in our low- and middle-income countries. So um, this is where I work in the Horn of Africa. Um, this is what I look like when I go to work, um, and this is what I do. I teach family medicine residents in the Horn of Africa. We just graduated our first batch of residents of five on Sunday was our first group that graduated. So we currently have um, 17 residents. Um, if you or anyone you know is interested in working amongst an unreached people group teaching family medicine, we need family medicine doctors and a surgeon. So find me later. Um, my background, I did a family medicine residency, and then I did an obstetric fellowship. I worked for two years in West Africa with the post-residency program with World Medical Mission, and then I was back in the U.S. working with refugees for four years, and then I've been back in Africa, in the Horn of Africa, for two years teaching family medicine. So I've provided a lot of antenatal care in a global setting. So today we're going to talk about the purpose and the expected outcomes of antenatal care. We're going to discuss the four-visit model recommended by the WHO compared to a more standard model that we might be accustomed to in the West. And we'll talk about the essential evidence-based components of antenatal care that can be practically implemented in low- and middle-income countries. So I want this to be real nuts and bolts so that you can go back to your setting, take this handout, and implement evidence-based measures that can be used in low- and middle-income settings. So first I want to think about why do we provide antenatal care. So I want to just take 90 seconds. I'd like you to turn to your neighbor, introduce yourself, and share why you think antenatal care is important. Great. Well, I'm sure you guys have come up with all the right answers on why antenatal care is important. I use the term antenatal care because that's what's typical in the rest of the world. The WHO uses that term. I think in the U.S. we use prenatal care more, more typically. That all means the same thing. So why do, why do we provide antenatal care? Does somebody have the answer? Yes. To prevent uh, both um, maternal mortality uh, deaths as well as infant mortality deaths. We're, we're saving moms and babies. Yeah, good. Great. So antenatal care provides opportunity for interventions that reduce maternal mortality, reduce stillbirth rates, and reduce neonatal mortality. So um, in evidence, antenatal care itself hasn't necessarily affected maternal mortality ratio, but there are interventions that we provide in antenatal care that have great evidence that affect outcomes. It has been shown to reduce neonatal infections, re reduce fetal growth, and improve neonatal survival. So this is an important intervention that we can provide so if we think about maternal mortality ratio, this is the rate of maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. This is data from 2013 um, from the WHO, the most recent data. So the darker the country, the, yes, the darker the country, the more um, 
more, more mortality there is. I don't think this shows up quite great enough. But if you see, the darkest areas are in sub-Saharan Africa, right? So worldwide, the maternal mortality ratio is 210 per 100,000. In sub-Saharan Africa, it's 510 per 100,000. Where I work, it's 850 per 100,000. And the highest is 1,100 per 100,000 in Sierra Leone. So the UN's new Sustainable Development Goals were just released in September. And um, instead of having very narrow focus, they've, they've really changed, the UN has changed how they're thinking about development. And so they released um, 17 goals. The third one has to do with health. I imagine you'll be hearing more about that this over this next <laughs> days. Oh, man. Um, and... And so within the goal of health and well-being for all at all ages, they have a target that in the next 15 years, they want to reduce the maternal mortality ratio to less than 70 per 100,000 globally. So that number would go from 210 to 70. And within that target, they also want to have no nation with a maternal mortality ratio of greater than 140 per 100,000. And the strategies within the UN have really shifted with these new goals. So Millennial Development Goals ended in 2015, and now we have the new Sustainable Development Goals. And they've really taken a shift from emergency care for a minority for women to wellness-focused care for all, including preventive and supportive care that emphasizes availability, accessibility, acceptability, and quality. So in the past, they were trying to get blood transfusions and C-sections and that comprehensive emergency care into as many places as they, can, as, as they can. And evidence has shown that that hasn't done a lot to reduce the maternal mortality ratio. And so now they're trying to big shift to focus on preventive and wellness care. So antenatal care fits in really well with that. So this is a chart that shows the correlation of antenatal care as well as skilled birth attendant um, on the maternal mortality ratio. So down here we have the maternal mortality ratio. This doesn't really show up on the screen very well. And, um, and on this axis you have the percentage of women that had at least one antenatal visit. So the blue dots um, show actually antenatal care for visits. So the higher percentage of women that had four antenatal visits, the lower the maternal mortality ratio. And so we know that... Um, Providing antenatal care can have an effect on maternal mortality. And this chart looks at the neonatal mortality rate. So the neonatal mortality rate is the rate of death by day 28 of life. And globally, that number is 19 per 1,000. And this data is from 2015. But as you see, in developing regions, the rate is 27. In sub-Saharan Africa, it's 25. And the highest rate is in southern Asia, including India, of 32 per 1,000. And this graph shows antenatal care in relationship to stillbirth and neonatal mortality rates. And so the axis... Axes are flipped. So at the bottom is antenatal care in percent. So this one shows at least one visit of antenatal care. So the more women um, that have at least one antenatal visit, the lower the stillbirth and neonatal mortality rate. So stillbirth is in blue and neonatal mortality is in red. So this is something that really affects outcomes. 
So how should we provide antenatal care? What would be the best time frame? Well, actually, the evidence is unclear. In 2001, there was an article published in Lancet. It was a systematic review done by the WHO to look at the standard visit model. And this is what we would think of in the U.S., where you go monthly until 32 weeks, and then every two weeks, and then every week until delivery. And so this meta-analysis was looking at whether a shortened version, a four-visit model, was non-inferior to that standard model. And the evidence in 2001 was published that it was not inferior, that it provided the same level of care. But there's been a more recent meta-analysis done this year by Cochrane that showed it disputed those findings, and they showed actually higher perinatal mortality rate, especially in low- and middle-income countries. So when you look at all of the countries, it may be non-inferior, but if you look especially at low- and middle-income countries, the smaller visit, the four-visit model had higher perinatal mortality. I'm not really sure what to do with that data. I think probably what it means, the bottom line is probably you need as many visits as it takes to engender compliance within your patients and to convey the needed information and to provide the needed interventions. Um, And then this map shows you a picture of, of... how well we're doing with providing antenatal care in the world. And so the darker countries this time have a higher uptake of antenatal care, and the gray ones have no data, but the lighter blue colors have the lower uptake. So in much of sub-Saharan Africa, again, we have a lower percentage, less than 50% of women have at least four visits during their pregnancy. And this compares women that have had one visit versus four visits. So globally, um, about 82% of women have um, one, at least one visit during their pregnancy, and, but it goes much lower. 50, only 54% have four visits, and, and there's a lot of different discrepancy in different parts of the world. So that is kind of the timing, how much antenatal care does someone need. And then we'll talk a little bit about setting of antenatal care. So I've kind of divided this into the WHO kind of has tiers of care or a hierarchy of where care can be provided. And so level one would be in a community level. So I don't know if any of you watch Call the Midwife, the BBC period drama from the 1950s east in London, women out in the community. So this would be, this would be the, the nurses going into the homes and providing care in the homes. Um, so how many of you are involved in some level of community-level care, whether you're teaching someone to do that or whether you're involved in that care specifically? Some of you. Good. Okay, and the next level of care is the primary health unit, like a maternal child health center or a local health clinic. And if you think about this and call the midwife, they have their antenatal visit once a week where they go and the women all come to the health unit. So how many of you are involved in that sort of care, a primary health unit at MCH? Good. Great. And then the third level of care is a referral health center. So this place might have some basic laboratory investigations, It might have the ability to provide emergency obstetric care with medications like antibiotics or uterotonics, things to stop bleeding, oxytocin, magnesium for high blood pressure. They can do manual removal of placenta and assisted deliveries and basic neonatal resuscitation. So this would be the maternity home where the women go and call the midwife. Um, 
How many of you are involved in that level, of that level of care? Good, some more of you. We're getting more and more people. And then finally, the fourth level is a referral hospital. So a hospital would have laboratory capabilities, they would have an ultrasound, and they would have comprehensive emergency obstetric care. So they would have the ability to do a C-section, blood transfusion, and care for low birth weight or sick newborns. And this is a picture of my commute on the way to my hospital where I work. So these are the components of the antenatal visit um, that, from my research, I think are, are the essential components. And you guys should have a handout that have these highlighted for you. And so what we're going to spend the rest of our time is going through these, talking about the evidence that is there to back this up. And I've divided this into two, two settings um, or two, two areas. There's those that in the presentation will be presented in blue, and those have the best evidence. So either randomized controlled trials or a meta-analysis that supports that this intervention improves outcomes. The other, which are in gold, which are still good practices, and some of these have been studied and have insufficient evidence to support them, but these are still things that I, that I uh, think are good practices to provide in antenatal care. So we'll go through these. And the other thing I wanted to say is as we go through these components, I'll point out in which setting they, can, they will typically be offered. So some things you can do in, with community health workers and can be done in the home, and some things require a hospital setting. So you'll note that as we go through the presentation, which can be provided in these different settings. So we'll go through these one by one. There are things from the history, the physical exam, laboratory, and things you do in management. Okay, so obviously when you have a patient that comes to you to initiate any sort of care, you want to get a good history. And so the first thing that's so important is getting a good obstetric history. And that includes gravity and parity. So how many times the woman's been pregnant and how many times she's delivered. And then you need a complete history with each of those deliveries. So you want to know where did she deliver? Did she deliver in the home? Did she deliver in the hospital? Did she have an operative delivery with a vacuum or forceps? Did she have a C-section? Um, did she have any complications associated with any of her pregnancies? Did she have high blood pressure or trouble with bleeding afterwards? Did she have preterm labor? Another important component is getting good dating, so finding out when her last menstrual period was and finding out the certainty of dates. I can tell you that my residents ask their patients, and they say, she has no, she doesn't know. Every time you ask a woman, and especially in a society that isn't as focused on time right. as we are, that when you ask a woman, when was your last period, her first answer will always be, I don't know. Yep. But if you ask her how many months does she think she is, then often she'll say, oh, I'm... I'm seven months. Um, so there's some kind of recognition about how far along she is. I always push my residents to keep asking. I say, you have to ask six or eight questions before you can find out how far along a woman is. And I teach them to ask, you know, was your last period before Ramadan or was it after Ramadan or was it when the rains came or was it when um, the dry season started? So really spending time to get to get an idea of the dating of her pregnancy, and then we use that Nagel's rule that um, allows us to calculate, you take your last menstrual period, add seven days, and subtract three months to get to the estimated due date. And then we can ask other questions, like when did she first feel the baby move, those sorts of things that help us get good dating. 
We want to know, too, about any medical or surgical history. Did she have surgery on her uterus before to take out fibroids? Has she had an ectopic pregnancy or an appendectomy, things that might cause scar tissue? Um, has she had female genital cutting? I'll be talking about that again on um, giving another talk on Saturday on that topic. So if you want to know more about that, you can look for that on Saturday. Um, and then also social history. So you want to know about her economic situation, her family support, all of those are good practices when we're providing antenatal care and where we start from. So these are the things that you, we elucidate on her first visit. And then every time she comes, we want to know about her interval history. So things that have happened between um, now and the last time that she was here. So we want to know about um, fetal movement. So if she's perceiving the baby move, they've uh, reviewed literature on this and found insufficient evidence that kick counts changes the outcome, but still it's a good practice and reassuring for mom and for us as providers, whether we're the midwife or the nurse or the doctor, to know that mom is perceiving fetal movement. These are two of my residents with triplets that they delivered, so this mom had lots of fetal movement. <laughs> So we also want to screen for symptoms of urinary tract infections. Urinary tract infections are associated with um, developing more complicated infections in the kidney that can lead to sepsis and other illness. Um, and urinary tract infections can also lead to preterm labor. In the U.S., we screen for um, bacteria in the urine with a urine culture, but that's not practical in most of our settings. We don't have access to do urine cultures, and so we really try and ask moms about whether they're having symptoms of the urinary tract infection. And then we want to know if she's having any bleeding or any discharge. There are um, sexually transmitted infections and other reproductive tract infections like bacterial vaginosis, gonorrhea, chlamydia that are associated with preterm labor. So we want to catch those and treat those. So asking these questions in the interval history are good practices. They're in gold. So these are portions of the interval history that are evidence-based. So asking about preeclampsia symptoms with every visit, whether she's having headache, Visual changes, swelling, right upper quadrant pain, those are all symptoms of preeclampsia. And then preterm, premature rupture of membranes, so asking if a woman's having leakage of fluid or a gush of fluid. Great, so now we're going to move on to physical exam and the important components. So first is weight, and as you see, this could be easily done in a maternal child health clinic or a referral health center or a hospital. So that's what that 234 is for beside the, the label there. So taking weight at the first visit determines appropriate weight gain for her pregnancy. So a woman that has a BMI less than 18.5, someone who's considered underweight, should only gain 28, should gain 28 to 40 pounds during her pregnancy. So she has a higher goal of weight gain. And we know some observational studies have shown that women who have poor weight gain during pregnancy have higher incidence of low birth weight infants and preterm deliveries. And then on the flip side, women that gain too much weight during pregnancy can have babies that are too big, macrosomia. They have increased risk of C-sections and then retaining that weight after delivery. So women who are overweight or obese have lower goals for their weight gain during pregnancy. 
Okay, and the next component of the physical exam is blood pressure monitoring. And this is something that can be done at all levels. It doesn't take hard work to take a blood pressure cuff into a home, and also something that we should be providing at hospital settings. So we want to screen every visit for hypertension. And hypertension is defined as a blood pressure with a systolic greater than 140 or a diastolic greater than 90 on two occasions four hours apart or any blood pressure greater than 160 systolic and 110 diastolic. And we'll talk a little bit about what to do with those numbers in a little bit. Great, so another essential component in the physical exam is screening for pallor. So American physicians are not very good at this because we can always just get a hemoglobin level. But if you've worked overseas, you've become an expert at examining conjunctiva. <laughs> and looking for um, pallor in the conjunctiva or on the palms or the nails. So that's an important component as well. So um, in your exam, you can screen for anemia, and that can be done in a number of settings. Another component is uterine size, so measuring in centimeters from the symphysis pubis to the fundus of the uterus. And this, in centimeters, roughly correlates with gestational age. And so a uh, level of the umbilicus is roughly 20 to 22 weeks. Um, and doing these measurements can help you track growth within the pregnancy. Um, it might alert you to multiple gestation. And it may also contribute to that knowledge of, of dating, which is often difficult to get. And then also the presence of fetal heart tones, whether you use a fetoscope or a Doppler to find fetal heart tones. And they should be present by 10 to 12 weeks of gestation. You should be able to hear with a Doppler at 10 to 12 weeks fetal heart tones. And there's no evidence to support these. Um, they have, they've looked at this, but, but they're comforting to the provider and the mom. <laughs> and so I continue to recommend... Um, to measure the uterine size and to listen for heart tones. Great, so the next component is Leopold maneuvers, and that's the name for the way that we do the physical exam of the abdomen on a gravid abdomen, so a woman that's pregnant. So we feel for, um, we can estimate fetal weight, and we can also determine the fetal presentation after 36 weeks. And so evidence shows that this is a good um, something that's necessary because we can find out if there's malpresentation. And that can have an impact on where a woman chooses to deliver as well as her mode of delivery. And so if a breach is found by the Leopold maneuvers that we use to determine the presentation, then we would recommend a maneuver called the external cephalic version. So it's where the doctor provider actually takes her hands and shifts and moves the baby to put the baby into a cephalic or head presenting um, presentation. So this has shown to affect outcomes. So this reduces breach delivery. Breach delivery is associated with poor outcomes in the baby. It's associated with asphyxia or lack of oxygen to the brain, um, the baby getting trapped and having a difficult delivery. And it also reduces C-section rates. So if you can get the baby into the head down position, more likely to have a normal delivery and to prevent the C-section for the mom. And so this is something that I'm also teaching my residents, trying to avoid C-section and, and doing that. So I have a short video clip that shows you, if you've not ever seen this before, 
Um, this shows you a doctor performing this procedure in South Africa. Hopefully this works. Operator is on her left side, the baby's back being on her right side, nearest the wall. We'll try once more to see if it will turn in the opposite direction. You just keep yourself nicely relaxed the way you have been doing. That's very good. Relax all your muscles, Ruth. Keep very, very soft. Somersault, more pressure can be applied to the head with the right hand to maintain flexion of the baby. Now the baby's turned. The head's down here. Baby's bottom's up here. Can you feel that it feels different? It feels different now, hey? Great, so one YouTube video does not an expert make. <laughs> so this is not a training seminar on how to do an external cephalic version. But I thought it would be um, a good idea, if you hadn't seen one before, to have a, a vision of what that looks like. This is something that should be done in a hospital setting where there is access to C-section because there is a small risk of causing fetal distress or the, um, the placenta to come away from the wall of the uterus. So this isn't something that you do at home. But do not do this at home. Um, but it is, it is effective, and it is a great way to be able to avoid C-sections and maybe more complicated deliveries. Great. So now we're going to move on to essential laboratory evaluation. And you'll probably notice here this is drastically different than um, the care that's provided in the U.S. We get lots of labs drawn in the U.S., and so a lot of those are not feasible in, in low- and middle-income countries. And so these are the ones that have the best evidence that affect outcomes and are widely available. So screening for syphilis is important. Syphilis um, can cause a number of fetal anomalies. It actually um, can be associated with preterm birth and stillbirth um, and fetal death neonatal death. And so this is something that's, um, the laboratory evaluation is widely available. The treatment is simple and easy, and so it's something that we should be doing on all of our pregnant patients. So the screening is the blood test is called an RPR or VDRL. And then if this comes back positive, we would treat with penicillin, benzathine penicillin, 1.2 million units weekly for three weeks. You treat the patient and her partner. In the U.S., we would do confirmatory tests, but in, in the low and middle income setting, it's just best to go ahead if you have a positive to treat. And then the other thing we want to do is screen for HIV. 
And so um, this can often be done actually in maternal child health centers because with the availability of the rapid tests, they're often much more out in the community and maybe in some settings they're doing them at home even. But this is an intervention that allows us, if the mom is positive, to give highly active antiretroviral therapy that prevents transmission to the baby and improves neonatal survival. Um, another one that may be available in um, referral health centers, but probably more likely in a hospital setting, is screening for hepatitis B infection. Chronic hepatitis B is endemic in sub-Saharan Africa and in the Pacific Rim. And so by finding out if the mom is positive and giving the vaccine to the baby within 24 hours of birth, and actually I saw an article this week that even if we do it within 12 hours, maybe we can reduce the transmission to the baby even further. And you know, this is an important measure that will help us prevent chronic hepatitis and hepatocellular carcinoma in the future. So if this is available in your setting, it's something that's recommended. We want to determine the mom's blood group and her RH um, because isoimmunization, where the mom attacks the, the blood cells of the baby, can lead to fetal hydrops and death and miscarriage, so there's a lot of complications. And in the 1960s, it was proven that giving anti-D or Rogam, that's the name that we know it here, helps prevent isoimmunization and subsequent pregnancies. In the U.S., we do it in um, 28 weeks as well, as well as after delivery, but there's no evidence to show that that dose during 28 weeks actually affects outcomes. And in my setting, um, the Rogam or the anti-D shot costs as much as a C-section, and it is economically out of the reach of many of my patients. So if I can be reassured that if I can just get that one dose after delivery that I can affect outcomes, I think that's a bit reassuring as well. And then also we talked before about the importance of screening and treating for anemia. So a hemoglobin is also a good idea. And we know that um, if we treat, anemia is associated with low birth weight infants and a lot of other complications. So we want to screen and treat for anemia. Another intervention that is evidence to support its use is ultrasound. And the evidence shows that ultrasound before 24 weeks gestation affects outcomes. And so we're able to accurately determine our gestational age. We're, we reduce induction at 41 weeks, so for post dates, and we can identify multiple gestation. And I put up there, you see a question mark by two and three, that's like the maternal child health center and the referral health center. We're training our residents go, they take a portable ultrasound machine that's no bigger than my laptop here, not even my laptop, this laptop here, and they take it into the maternal child health centers. They're there four days a week, and they are identifying fetal anomalies. They're getting accurate gestational ages, and so I, I'm a big fan of ultrasound, and I think it's if you're going to invest money in a way to impact antenatal care, maternal care, ultrasounds are getting cheaper and cheaper all the time, and this is a way to really impact care. They also did a study in Uganda that um, showed that they could they increased compliance with other measures of antenatal care by having an ultrasound available at a maternal child health center. So the centers that had the ultrasound had higher rates of compliance with the antiretroviral therapy because the women were, were excited to come and take a look at their baby. And so I just put that forth 
there's evidence that shows that it's worthwhile, and also from my personal experience, I think it's a really great investment to have a portable ultrasound machine that can go out into the community. It also can affect a woman's decision on where she delivers. Um, for instance, if you know twins, you know that's a higher risk pregnancy. She may choose to come to a hospital to deliver. Or if you see a baby that has anomalies, then having the mom be able to refer and take that time to get to a hospital to deliver where the baby can get the care that he needs after delivery, that can, all those things can impact outcomes. So the evidence doesn't show much benefit after 24 weeks. Um, it doesn't affect outcomes, but we still we do ultrasounds on all comers in our maternal child health clinics, and I think it's a, a good, good device to have. Um, now we're going to move on to more interventions and management issues. So um, if we think about the global causes of maternal mortality, this graph shows that this light gray over here is indirect causes of maternal mortality. And so this dark brown over here is hemorrhage. So bleeding is the number one cause of maternal mortality in the world. 27.5% of maternal deaths come from bleeding after delivery. And the second most common is high blood pressure. And that is about 14% of maternal deaths are due to high blood pressure, followed by sepsis and abortion. So we're going to talk about high blood pressure for a few minutes. So for those who have chronic hypertension, which means high blood pressure before pregnancy or blood pressure that is diagnosed before 20 weeks of gestation, we affect outcomes by treating chronic hypertension. And our goal is a little bit different than for those who are non-pregnant. So we treat chronic hypertension in pregnancy when the blood pressure reaches 160 systolic or 110 diastolic. And these are the medications that are available to treat. So there's really three of them, nifedipine, which is a calcium channel blocker, methyl dopa, or labetalol. Um, ACE inhibitors are contraindicated. They're teratogenic. Um, diuretics aren't recommended. So other beta blockers besides labetalol are not recommended. So there's not very many choices. And these are your choices for treating chronic hypertension. So what about other hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. I don't have time to go over all of that. The guidelines have really changed in the last two years as far as how to diagnose and, and how we treat um, preeclampsia. And so if you're involved in obstetric care overseas, then you need to find a way to review these important topics because I'll just briefly touch on them. But we diagnose severe preeclampsia with a blood pressure after 20 weeks of greater than 160 over 110. Um, also protein on urine dipstick or severe features. So if you have high blood pressure, but no protein in the urine, but severe features, that's still severe preeclampsia. And that's a big change in the guidelines in the last two years. And so the severe features would be headache, visual disturbances, pulmonary edema, other lab abnormalities. So when severe preeclampsia is diagnosed, um, the treatment is... The cure is delivery, and, but that depends on gestational age. And then the other important component of preeclampsia treatment is magnesium sulfate. And so treatment with magnesium sulfate reduces um, seizures, so which is a complication in preeclampsia. It reduces maternal death and reduces stillbirth rates, so very important intervention. 
And in the U.S., we use IV magnesium. We get it through an IV drip. I don't know. Um, we don't have electricity all the time, so we can't use electronic pumps. And it's such has a such um, narrow therapeutic window that just giving it through an IV isn't feasible. And so the WHO protocol involves giving an IV push as the loading dose, but then giving intramuscular injections of magnesium. And I've written the doses here, and it's in your handout too. And then, like I said, the ultimate cure is delivery, and that decision depends on the gestational age. So the, another thing that we want to do is try to prevent some of the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. And so there's been recent evidence that's come out in the last few years that shows that we can do that. We can prevent um, severe preeclampsia in those that are high risk. So who is high risk? High risk is a woman that has had severe preeclampsia in a previous pregnancy that resulted in a preterm birth, or any woman who's had two episodes of preeclampsia in previous pregnancies. So those women benefit from calcium and aspirin. Calcium um, reduces preeclampsia in those with a low calcium diet who are at risk. And so many places in low and middle income countries are calcium deficient. And so this is an easy intervention that can help prevent. And I would venture that a lot of women, and especially in Muslim countries that cover and don't have vitamin D um, exposure are even more at risk for calcium deficiency. And so one and a half to two grams of elemental calcium divided daily with meals. Um, so that would be two and a half grams of calcium carbonate or four grams of calcium citrate. And then aspirin. So those who are high risk, aspirin reduces preeclampsia, preterm birth, and neonatal death. And this is a low-dose aspirin, so we would say a baby aspirin. But even 60 to 80 milligrams a day started at the end of the first trimester can help prevent preeclampsia. Great, so some other important interventions, um, tetanus immunization, and this can easily be done in a home or in a hospital setting. So tetanus is a highly fatal disease and is easily preventable with a vaccine series. And so I've put the dose series on there, the first one and then four weeks later to complete a five-dose series. And this can be, um, a baby can obtain tetanus from unsterile, unhygienic um, settings during birth, so cutting the cord and those kinds of things can lead to tetanus. And tetanus vaccination is really available worldwide. Another issue is smoking cessation. Um, where I am, women don't smoke, but maybe where you work, women, women smoke. And so by counseling women to stop smoking reduces preterm birth and low birth weight infants. And there might be other substances that are abused in the settings where you work. And so thinking about substance abuse and counseling women to stop during pregnancy is important. Another important intervention is iron and folic acid supplementation. So we talked about treating anemia with iron, but giving iron supplementation to women who are not anemic also affects outcomes. So it reduces the incidence of anemia, and anemia can lead to inadequate weight gain, a higher incidence of infections, premature birth, and low birth weight infants. And so every woman should get a preventive dose of 30 milligrams of elemental iron daily. And the treatment dose may be higher based on her hemoglobin level. And then folic acid supplementation is important. 12 weeks prior to conception until 12 weeks of gestation prevents neural tube defects like spina bifida, meningomyelocele, hydrocephalus, other things like that. And so for a woman that 
um, for primary prevention is 0.4 milligrams a day, but a woman that's had a baby with a neural tube defect should take higher doses of 4 milligrams a day. All right, another infectious disease that is endemic in many of our settings is malaria. And so preventing and managing malaria is an important component of antenatal care. So insecticide-treated nets are easy to distribute out in the community or have available at a hospital. And they've been shown for a mom to sleep under a net reduces placental malaria, so her passing malaria through the placenta to the baby, so the baby would have congenital malaria at birth. Um, it reduces mom having anemia, and it reduces low birth weight infants. And then giving intermittent preventive therapy during her pregnancy. So actually taking medication to treat malaria spaced out through her pregnancy has been shown to also affect outcomes. So the medicine that's most commonly used is Fancidor. Don't make me say the generic name. Um, and it's given in four doses. So the first dose is late in the second trimester and then monthly until delivery. And that reduces placental malaria, maternal anemia, low birth weight infants, and all-cause child mortality. So moms that take this medication during pregnancy, their children have lower mortality under the age of five. Yeah? Is that new? Because I, I work in Sub-Saharan Africa, and we've only done it in the second and third trimester only. Is this, are these new guidelines? These are from the WHO Pregnancy Childbirth and neonatal care, which was the newest edition, the third edition was published just last month, 2015. Oh, so so I don't know if that's a change or not, but yes, we've that's never the. We've done it that way, so I'm just very curious about that. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay, so another, um, another potential complication of pregnancy that if we identify and treat that can affect outcomes is preterm premature rupture of membranes. So this is what happens when the woman loses her amniotic fluid before labor starts. And the preterm part means before 37 weeks, so before she's reached full gestational age. And so um, this is an important condition to diagnose because it can lead to premature birth and it can lead to infection for both the mom and the baby. And so the way that we diagnose this condition is from history. Usually women will complain of a gush of fluid or leakage of clear fluid over a period of time. When we do a speculum exam, we find pooling so we can see the amniotic fluid. Um, and then we can do a test where we look under the microscope um, for ferning. So actually the amniotic fluid makes it look like a fern, like a, the plant, the fern. Um, or it can turn the pH paper blue. So those are ways that we diagnose preterm premature rupture of membranes. So the cure for this condition is delivery, but the, whether the decision um, comes immediately or later depends on the gestational age. So in general, if a woman is 34 weeks or greater, then she should be induced and she should be delivered. Um, if she's less than that, if she's preterm, um, not near, near term, but preterm less than 34 weeks, then she should receive antibiotics and corticosteroids. So antibiotics reduces the risk of infection in the mom, infection in the baby, and preterm birth. And erythromycin is the drug of choice from the WHO. Um, I've, we find that's not available in our setting, and we tend to use um, the protocol that's available or that is published by Brian Mercer years ago, the Mercer Protocol of ampicillin and erythromycin, and the doses are written for you. 
The other important thing is to give corticosteroids. And so corticosteroid before 34 weeks reduces neonatal morbidity and mortality. It reduces respiratory distress syndrome, intraventricular hemorrhage, necrotizing enterocolitis. And this is an important component any time that a woman needs to be delivered preterm. So if she has severe preeclampsia and must be delivered, the steroid use can help affect outcomes for the baby. And there are only two steroids that should be used, betamethasone or dexamethasone. They're the only two that cross the placenta, they get to the mom, and they've only been studied using intramuscular doses. So does it work IV? I don't know. It's not been studied. And so these are the, the dosing regimens that are recommended. If all you have is prednisone, don't bother. It doesn't work. Right. Okay, and another important management decision that we can talk with our patients about is delivering with a skilled birth attendant. So this is the single most important evidence-based obstetric care decision that a woman can make, and it reduces maternal mortality by up to a third. And so what is a skilled birth attendant? It's a trained health provider who's completed a set course of study in handling obstetric emergencies and is registered or legally licensed to practice. And so some traditional birth attendants have gone through courses and have become skilled birth attendants. Um, but this is an important thing to talk about with our patients as they think about their antenatal care. Some other important parts of education and counseling, um, these are good practices, they don't have the evidence to go with them, is, is talking with our patient about planning for her delivery. So where is she going to deliver? Is she going to deliver at home? Is she planning to go to a maternal child health clinic or to a hospital? And how is she going to get there? And who's going to go with her? Um, if a woman's had a previous C-section, talking with her about her options for trial of labor after C-section, um, or maybe she needs a repeat C-section. If she has a multiple gestation or malpresentation, does she need to have a cesarean section? Which family should she bring with her? And if you live in a house like this, maybe delivering at home isn't the greatest idea, but that's what most women in my setting do, is deliver in their homes that look like that. We should also talk about warning signs, so we need to educate our patients about when to seek medical care. Um, if she's having loss of fluid, the women in my setting believe that the, when the fluid breaks, they just wait and sit at home for labor to, to start or to deliver. So whether that happens, you know, two months before her expected date, she doesn't seek medical care. And so we have to be educators and teaching our patients when they need to seek medical care, if they have contractions, if they have headache all of those warning signs. And also we should counsel our patients that after they deliver to be um, providing breast milk for their babies. So counseling them to provide exclusive breastfeeding for six months. Um, another evidence-based practice is family planning. So this is not limiting family size, but planning when to have your children. And so in a lot of um, context that's important to make that distinction about what family planning is, that we're not coming in and telling people to limit their families, but just thinking about and planning when they're going to have their children. And so a short interpregnancy interval of less than 18 months is associated with preterm birth, low birth weight infants, and fetal death. And actually a long interval, more than five years, is also associated with outcomes. So find the methods that are available um, acceptable, accessible, and of quality in your area, and, and teach your patients about those methods. So this is just a review. This is where we've been and what we've talked about. Um, 
These are some of the resources that I find helpful. This is the WHO book that I just mentioned that is available um, online as a PDF. You can download it. You can just Google WHO pregnancy childbirth book. This will come up. The third edition was just published in September, so make sure you get the most up-to-date one. You can download the PDF. If you live in a, um, outside North America or even Western countries, they will send you, if you have a mailing address, they will send you books for free. The WHO will send them to your site. So there's a way on the website to request the book to be mailed to you. And so you can get these spiral-bound books um, that are really important. This is a lot of my information came from here. Um, also, I like the, the NICE guidelines are from the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This is the British version, and they do a great job of compiling the evidence to, to point out which antenatal care components are really important. Um, and then I have two pages of sources. I think people are writing down the names and how to get these, these sites, so I won't move it ahead. But um, I have some time for questions. We have about seven minutes, I think. So any questions? Yes? If there is any data on how long do you continue aspirin and calcium? Sure, that's a good question. The question was how long do you continue the aspirin and calcium? And it's just through, through the pregnancy, so there's no time on when you, when you stop it. Calcium is probably a good idea during breastfeeding as well, so that would be a good thing to continue. But the aspirin especially is just during the, just during the pregnancy. Great, yeah. Did they, um, on the outcomes that they study with like the four visits versus like the 15 visits, did they study if those were like with healthcare workers versus actual like doctors in different settings? Like, because I know some places I've been, they only come to see a doctor, you know, if something bad is going in, that they're seeing a community health worker, you know, and maybe getting some of these things. Yeah, that's a good question. So she asked about whether in the studies about the four-visit model versus the standard model, if they looked at who was providing the antenatal care. And I'm not sure. I, I think that it was a skilled provider, um, but I, I'm not sure how, how they looked at that. I would have to look back at the articles. Um, so I think if you think about what's missing, you know, if you compare what we have in the U.S. and the care that we provide, what are some of the things that are missing versus what I'm proposing are the evidence-based components. There's no screening for diabetes. Um, that's often not very practical in a third-world setting to do a 50-gram sugar load or 75-gram glucose tolerance test. Um, a lot of screening for other infections like rubella, cytomegalovirus, the genetic screening, those kinds of lab tests aren't available. But a lot of the important components that we have in the U.S. are able to be translated into low- and middle-income countries in their settings. So, um, great. Any other questions? Yeah. Great. Yeah, so... It's, it's availability. So tetanus toxoid is, is very commonly available. We have a little cooler that comes to our antenatal clinic every week, and they give the tetanus vaccine, but the Tdap isn't available in our setting. Um, so that's, that's one of the reasons I didn't talk specifically about Tdap. But we know that that pertussis, that passive immunity, is really important. So if you're in a place where they have Tdap, by all means, that would be your choice. Yeah, great. Yes.
Yeah, I would say thinking about these topics, especially probably um, counseling on, um, well, at least in the place where I work, home deliveries are very common and just lack of, lack of health care. So trying to educate and counsel the patients to seek care um, and to think about family planning and, and spacing out their pregnancies are some of the bigger challenges that I've seen in a Muslim context versus a more, a more churched context. And, and really just getting people to enter into the health care system has been – and I don't know if that's necessarily – Islam or it's just the setting where I work where people are really reluctant to enter into medical care. But I would think the family planning component might be a, more of a barrier in Muslim contexts. Yeah. Yes? Do you see much um, uh, GBS disease in Great. So that's a good question. He asked if I see much GBS disease. Probably. I just don't know it. <laughs> right. So... Right, so we have quite a bit of neonatal infectious disease, and so that's one of the that's the most common cause of neonatal mortality. So we think about that neonatal mortality rate. The number one cause is infection, and then and number two would be asphyxia or birth injuries. Um, and so we see a lot of infectious disease. It's probably it's probably GBS. We don't have a way to screen or treat for that. So we use the GBS prophylaxis. Um, for an unknown carrier. So we treat for GBS prophylaxis for rupture membranes greater than 18 hours if it's a preterm delivery or if the mom has fever. So those are the times that we start GBS prophylaxis in labor. Yes? Great. That's a, it's a very good question. She asked about pelvis assessment. So as a component of antenatal care, doing um, parts of the exam where you can assess the size and whether a woman's pelvis is deemed adequate for a vaginal delivery. And so, you know, I think that's a good practice. It's actually the evidence isn't there to support it. So doing obstetric, the conjugate, diagonal conjugate, and finding out and assessing the size of of a woman's pelvis doesn't affect outcomes. It doesn't predict accurately whether a woman is going to be able to deliver vaginally or not. And so typically, it's a trial of labor. So labor proves whether a woman's pelvis is adequate or not to deliver that, that baby. And so, you know, that might be something that's considered, especially in your setting, if you do have a lot of early marriage and young women, very young teenagers coming to deliver, that might be an important component of antenatal care where you are. But um, the evidence doesn't doesn't support it as as a way to change outcomes. Great. Yes. Related to that question, we have trouble with national physicians recommending C sections based on supplementation because I've had that issue. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, so, so the problem of people making that assessment beforehand without giving women a trial labor, increasing the C-section rate. Yeah, so like I said, the, we're, we're, not, we're not experts at being able to determine pelvic size very well, and so our, our assessment of a, of a pelvis isn't adequate enough to be able to affect outcomes. We, we can't pick out the women whose, whose pelvis size is so small that they wouldn't be able to have a vaginal delivery, and so that's why that's part of the reason it's not um, an evidence-based component. 
Yes. Just to answer to your question that he had about when to discontinue or not the aspirin prophylaxis, we've stopped it at 36 weeks for concern of a bronchial placenta. This does affect platelets. Right. Yeah, that's a good point, too, that sometimes you can stop it at term at 36, 37 weeks so that you're not increasing risk of bleeding as you get further along. Good. Yeah, great. I think that's our time here. Thank you very much for your attention. There are, um, there are evaluations as you leave the room, so if you can take one and um, give feedback about this session, that would be greatly appreciated. And if you're getting CME credit, um, part of the requirement. So.